Amen. You may be seated. I felt like we were just getting started. <laughs> we got more. You know, we'll do more. We'll get that. All right. Thank you, Maya, Mark, so much. We appreciate and give thanks to God for both of you. So I want to ask you all a question. Have any of you here been in a car that drives itself yet? Has anyone been in one of those cars? A couple that drives itself. Okay, a couple of you have. For some reason, we get very nervous about a car that drives itself. And I have to be honest, I'm a little nervous about being in a car that drives itself. Most people who sit in a car with me are nervous that I'm even driving the car most of the time, <laughs> much less the car drive itself. But for some reason, for a long time, we've been used to planes that fly themselves. Plane takes off, pilot turns on the autopilot, plane basically flies itself until it's ready to land, and in some cases, the plane can almost practically land itself. So, for whatever reason, ignorance is bliss, isn't it? There's a reason they keep the door shut to the flight deck of the airplane, so you can't actually see what the pilot and co-pilot are doing while the plane is on autopilot. But would anyone want to get on a plane without a pilot or, or co-pilot? No, no one would want to get on that plane. No matter how good the technology is, you want to make sure that there's someone on that plane that knows how to fly it and especially land it. <laughs> Our life of faith, the, the journey that we're each on spiritually, is not an autopilot affair. It requires intentionality. It requires focus. We often talk about how it requires discipline. It requires attention. And today I want to talk with you about that, about the importance of being renewed in commitment. And so this isn't a, a message today about how you all need to deepen your commitment. It's simply a message today that I believe God's really placed on me in my own life, and I hope for all of us to be able to hear about how we're called every day to renew our commitment to being a follower of Jesus Christ. That every day we need to have an opportunity where we, we say to God, Lord, I am yours, and I place my life before you each and every day. And this story from Exodus gives us a wonderful example of how God works in the midst of that commitment that we make every day. In this text, we hear that God promises to do three things for the Israelites. Listen carefully. It's in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. It says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. That's the first thing. You will be my possession among all the peoples. And just in case we were confused, at the end of verse 5, God says to Moses, For all the earth is mine. Then in verse 6, it says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. That's the second thing. And then, in the middle of verse 6, and a holy nation. That's the third thing. So today I want to talk about those three parts of that verse. Those three things. How we're a possession among God's people, that God promises to make us a kingdom of priests, and that we're a holy nation. And this is all done in the context of covenant. Covenant is not like a contract. 
A contract is an agreement that we have with a, a, a third party or another person that we're going to either pay something or do something, but it doesn't matter whether we have a relationship with the individual or not. It's almost like the, the contract is disembodied from the people that are making the agreement. It's like a third thing. Whereas covenant is different. Covenant isn't another thing. Covenant is actually built on the relationship between those who are making the covenant together. In this case, God and the people of Israel. It's built on relationships. So God says, I will do all these things, and what you need to do is obey and keep my commandments. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Well, no, it's actually not that simple. That's why the Bible has 66 books in it, because it's not that simple. What we find is people that go off track, they forget, they take for granted, they lose the vision that God is giving them right there at Sinai. So I want to talk today about how we ground ourselves in that commitment each and every day and how we can be renewed in it. So let's talk about each one of those three one at a time. The first thing that God promises to do is that he says, I'll make you a possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So first, it's a commitment to be community. This is a community of people. Now, this is the first time that the nation of Israel, as we know it, has gathered together as a people. So you might remember a little bit of this story in Genesis, and if you don't, I'll, I'll fill you in. Uh, there was a period in time in which um, the family of Jacob found themselves in Egypt, and they decided to stay there. And they were part of the Egyptian world, Egyptian culture, because there was a great famine in their land. And you might remember one of Jacob's sons named Joseph, and you might know the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Is this coming back to you? Okay, perhaps it is in the, the, the cultural knowledge that you have in the room. Now, the reason why this becomes important is because Jacob's name was changed in the book of Genesis from Jacob to Israel. So when it talks about the sons of Israel, that's not a nationalistic phrasing. That's actually a familial way of describing them. You're from the house of Israel. In other words, one of Jacob's descendants. Well, after several hundred years, those descendants of Jacob or Israel became a multitude of people that the Egyptians enslaved. And then, upon their enslavement, they became completely and utterly oppressed, even in the midst of their own slavery, which was an oppression unto itself. Moses, meanwhile, is out in the wilderness tending sheep, and he's near this mountain called Sinai, and God appears to Moses in a burning bush and says, Moses, go back to Egypt, get my people, and set them free. That's essentially a four-hour Cecil B. DeMille movie I just condensed <laughs> into about 30 seconds, all right? Moses goes back to Egypt, leads the children of Israel. You understand what that means now? Children of Israel? Not a nationalistic term, it's a family term. Leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, and what does he do? Like any good follower, he brings them to the exact location where God appeared to him in the burning bush. He comes back and he says, okay, we're here. Come back to the mountain. Now that they're back at the mountain, then so begins the conversation we read in Exodus 19, the story of God and the Israelites speaking one another. And this is the first time this group of people have met their own God. All they've known about this God is the, all the stories that have been handed down about how God spoke to Abraham, about how God spoke to his son Isaac, how God spoke to the so-called patriarchs. 
But hundreds of years have gone by, and this is the first chance this nation has had to meet their God. It is like a first date, the first time they've met. And so God goes up the mountain, and God tells Moses, now Moses, um, tell the people this, and that's the passage I read for you a few moments ago. They're going to be God's own possession. Now, notice the text makes it clear at the end of verse 5 that it isn't that God selected them and rejected everybody else, because it makes it clear in verse 5, for all the earth is whose? Mine, God says, in the possessive. All the earth is mine. So God invites them to be a people now, a nation, a community. So if you're wondering, when does this family of Israel become the nation of Israel? That's the moment. When God says, I'm going to make you into something, God fashions them into something. Community is important. And we have to remember it being community doesn't mean we're better. It just means we're called. Community is important. Do you know every week about 100 people worship with us right inside that little camera right there? Or that one over there or that one over there. It's called the people who worship with us on live stream or maybe they worship with us after worship. Now, that wasn't true before pandemic. Before pandemic, about 15 to 20 people worshiped with us online. Since pandemic, even now that we've come back into the sanctuary, a huge part of our community and a very committed part of our community, a very engaged part of our community, worship with us online every single week. Very committed people and deeply invested in what God is doing in the life of this church. There is much community as we're community. And so there's ways in which we need to remember that this church is not necessarily the people who showed up in this room on a Sunday morning. This church has a whole community of people that are engaged with us digitally, engaged with us physically, in all sorts of times and contexts and places. We even know that there's somebody who watches our live stream in Europe. We don't know where exactly, like we can't go to their address, but they're in Europe. So there's people engaged with what God is doing in our community in a global sort of way. Now, I raise all that for you because I want you to remember there's other ways we connect at a church. You were here maybe a couple of weeks ago when we had the Sunday Cafe over in the Upper Fine Center. That seemed to go okay, didn't it? We like being a community together. Being a community is important together. And brothers and sisters, it's all the more important for us to be a community in the same way God called the Israelites to be community, because especially after pandemic, people are starved for community. People are starved for a sense of relationship and connection together. We started having our small groups in our church meet just over the last couple of weeks, our Connect small group ministry. We have one of our small groups that has people that want to come to it that don't go to our church at all. And don't go to any church at all. Because they're hungry to be in community and relationships together. So we have to be committed to our sense of being community together. And we have to renew that commitment of being God's people together. Our gathering in Christian community is not a recreation. It is a habit and a commitment we make every day of our lives. And so I wanted to offer you a tool that might be helpful to keep this commitment at the forefront of your mind every day. And it's this particular prayer. 
It's from Clement of Rome. It was written toward the very end of the first century. And uh, Clement of Rome is two degrees separated from the Apostle Paul, if you wonder what this connection is about. And here's Clement's prayer about community. So let's pray together. And I want you to just listen to this prayer. We ask you, Master, be our helper and defender. Rescue those of our number in distress. Raise up the fallen. Assist the needy. Heal the sick. Turn back those of your people who stray. Feed the hungry. Release our captives. Revive the weak. Encourage those who lose heart. Let all the nations realize that you are the only God, that Jesus Christ is your child, and that we are your people, the sheep of your pastor. Amen. Perhaps that's a prayer you could pray during this week once or twice, a few times, to commit yourselves to being renewed in your commitment to community. This morning, I'm going to be sharing three different prayers with you, and we've printed all three of them out on a piece of paper you can pick up as you leave this morning. It's on the table right to the right as you lead through the center door. I'll make sure we get it posted online so you can have it too. These same prayers you can pray at home and let them be kind of a guide for you on a daily basis in your commitment. So a question we might ask about community is this is how have you shared your commitment to Christian community with others? Because other people are looking for community too. So how have you shared that with others and invited them into community? Well, there's three things, remember, that God said that God would do. One is I'd make you into a community. Then God says, I'll make you into a nation of priests. Now, that's an odd thing to name a group of people, a nation of priests, I'm sure when they were all gathered there at Sinai and they heard that, they were like, huh? You want us to what? Yes, I want you to be a nation of priests. Let's talk about what that means. This nation is to have a purpose, and its purpose is to be mediators. Well, what does that mean? A kingdom of priests is this, is that the role of a priest is to mediate between two parties, in this case, between God and the world. That's Israel's job as a community of people is to mediate God to the world. And so that, in a sense, they're the pipe through which God would move and speak and the world would speak back through them again. That pipe back and forth, that, ways of, that way of mediating together is what their role is. So, what in the world is a priest then? It's a mediator, yes, but throughout biblical history, there's a sense in which all of God's people function as priests. So, for the nation of Israel, were some of them not priests? Not according to this. Everyone's a priest. And especially in the world in which we live and understand ourselves as a Protestant community, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. You've heard of this before, right? That means you're a priest too, and that I'm a priest, that we're all priests together. But sometimes what happens is the secular worldly way of power and authority leak into the life of the church. And we begin to think that there are those in the church that are more priestly than other people. And there's where we make a terrible error. And it's, it's 
ripe within the Protestant church, a church that rebelled against the notion of only certain people were priests, but it's everywhere. I've served as your pastor for 11 months and three weeks. I don't have enough fingers and toes on myself or my family to count how many times people look at me and defer decisions to me just because I'm the pastor. This is not how the church is supposed to work. We don't all sit around and look at the pastor and go, what do we do? You're the pastor. You, you, you decide. Because when that happens, it's just a giant funnel, isn't it? And that funnel all goes through how many people? One. You should be scared. <laughs> you should be scared. Uh, this thing here that you see me wear during communion sometimes, we, we often call it a stole. Okay? You see it? And this one here has got a bunch of different colors on it. It's given to me as a gift. And um, we call it a stole, but its historic and traditional name is a yoke. And don't think of egg yolk. What types of things do you put a yoke on? An animal, right? You're going to plow the field, you put a yoke on it. That's what this symbolizes. It symbolizes that the person who wears it has been set apart to serve the community. It's not a sign of power and authority. It's a sign of service. And it's dominantly a reminder to the one who wears it that every time it's put on, you take upon yourself the yoke of service to Jesus. The vestment is first and foremost a reminder for the one who wears it and then for the people who watch it. Ordination and being a pastor, I call it downward mobility. <laughs> that the notion of being a clergy person is to put your place in the point of service of the community, caring for it. And so in many ways, what my job is as a pastor is to help you as a church be priests. To be priests, to be mediators of the grace, and, grace of God where you live, where you work, and where you play. So that in all of your life, you're able to share and convey the love and the grace of God with people around you. And the church sets people apart to do that serving work. I hope I explained that well enough. But Israel's role is the same. It's to serve the world, but to not be isolated from it. And that's our job as well. Our work is to serve the world, but not be isolated from it. So here are some pictures from a couple weeks ago. We took a prayer walk as a church, you might remember, back on June the 4th. And as we walked around Queen Anne, a little over two miles, we would walk and pray. And here are some of the places we stopped to pray at. And when we would stop to pray, we would pray out loud. In this case, you can see we're praying at the fire station, for example, for first responders, for police, firefighters, other individuals. And then we would walk, as you would see here. And the discipline we kept when we walked was silence. We didn't speak at all while we walked. We were trying to watch and listen to the world around us so we could be praying for everything that we saw and everything that we heard. And then we would stop at places like Bethany Presbyterian or here at the Queen Anne Library and pray. 
You see, our work as a church is not to be isolated from the world, it's to serve it. And one of the ways we do that is by praying for the world. When we go walk around our community and pray for it, we're being a kingdom of priests, praying for the world in which we live. Just last week, the week before last, our Fostering Hope ministry was up at the Queen Anne Farmer's Market, and they had a little booth set up up there. So as people came through the Farmer's Market, they picked up all sorts of information about Fostering Hope. We were present in the community. We weren't hiding from it. We were there because we want people to know about the work we do with foster children and foster families. And there were a lot of people who came through that booth. Pastor Camille, who's right here, said, well, over 100 people came by and picked up things and engaged in conversation and learned about what our church is doing. This is what we're talking about. To be a kingdom of priests means that what we do outside these four walls becomes just as important as what we do inside these four walls. So another prayer, another prayer for you to focus on this week is one that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I'm sorry to tell you St. Francis didn't write this prayer. I know it's disappointing. You know, history can be a bummer sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> this prayer, it first appeared in a, a French publication called the La Cochette at the beginning of the 20th century. That doesn't diminish the significance of what is prayed here, just because St. Francis didn't write it. And so now what I'd like you to do as we pray is I'd like you to watch the screen as I read you the prayer. Follow the words. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that a may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. This prayer is on that handout you can take with you today to pray during the week. A very, very famous and well-known prayer. A question you could wonder about this week. How am I known for being a generous bridge builder who witnesses to Jesus Christ? How are you known for that? That's the role of being a mediator. There's one last thing that the Israelites are promised would happen to them, what God would do for them, and that would be that they would be a nation set apart. It's, it's a, called a holy nation. I want you to notice that uh, to be holy is to be set apart. And the language of set apart is, is always in the passive voice, never the active. So who does the setting apart? Do we do it? No, no, God is the one who does it. God is the one who sets us apart. This is what is happening with the Israelites. They're being set apart by God to be a holy nation. So what does this notion of holiness mean? And this is important for us as Methodists because we talk about holiness a lot. But there is an essential confusion about holiness. And the essential confusion is this, is that when we talk about being holy, the people that are not us describe us as holier than thou. The people that are not us describe us as holier than thou. 
So it's an indication that we've muddied the waters on what holiness means, and we've confused people about it. The Hebrew word for holiness and the Greek word for holiness practically have the same meaning. We do not set ourselves apart. God sets us apart. Now, being set apart isn't about being awesome, because the Israelites aren't quite awesome yet. Their numbers are probably around 200 to 250,000 when they gather at Sinai. All right? That's not a big nation, is it? That's not even a big county for us. That's hardly even a big city for us. They gather together, and God says, I'm going to set you aside so that my grace can work through you. So holiness isn't so much about being better than anyone else or doing things better than anyone. Holiness is about being weird, peculiar, odd, different, with a weird set of practices that other people don't keep. The Israelites are about to find this out the hard way. As soon as this conversation is over, Moses is going to go back up the mountain. God's going to give him the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws to go along with it. They're going to learn what being weird means. Being weird means is that you don't work one day a week. Being weird is that there's certain types of food you can't have that everyone else is eating, but you can't. Being weird means you're going to have to circumcise your firstborn males. Now that's weird. The weirdness or the peculiarity of what God brings to the Israelites is designed to make them a nation group or a people that are different and peculiar. Now, there's theological reasons behind all those laws and why they're given and what they mean and the construct. But their most important person, most important purpose was to make them weird. <laughs> so the Israelites weren't like everybody else. That's what being holy means. Being holy is about how God fashions us into the very image of Jesus Christ. And that that image of Jesus in us makes us peculiar, that we stand out in a world of homogeneity, a world that is constantly trying to conform everybody to be the same thing. God beckons us to be different. Holiness is what makes us like Jesus and leads us ultimately to perfection. That's weird. And God's at work doing that in our midst. Why are we set apart? Because holiness is intended to be a witness in the world. Why do you think salt is salt? Why is light light, is what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. Because light is not darkness, and salt is not blandness. We're designed to be peculiar and to stand out. So if you've come to a church to hide, you have come to the wrong place. If you have become a follower of Jesus to blend in, you have come to the wrong place. God's work in our life is to make us stand out, to make us salt and light in the world. Now, for the Methodists, this was really hard to do. And so what happened is uh, the founder of the Methodist movement, a guy named John Wesley, had a time in which everyone would gather together every year to re-up their commitment to do this. And it was called the Watch Night Service, or John Wesley's Covenant Service. And it's the third and last prayer that I want to offer to you. And I'd like us to read it together. Ready? I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. 
Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it, and the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. A question to wonder about this week, or what areas of my life are hard to let go of on a daily basis? And where can I yield to the Lord in greater ways? Those are actually holiness questions. It says in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What Peter is making clear in his writing and what Christian thinkers and authors have put forward for years for us to understand. And in many ways, the movement of God in Jesus Christ is an expression of this so that we understand that every assignment given to the nation of Israel is now an assignment given to us. We are the new Israel. We are the people who are called to hold this covenant. And if we read anything in the Bible, especially in the 39 books of Jewish Scripture we call the Old Testament, what we learn time and time and time again is that when that community failed to be God's people, it was when they forgot. Is when they took it for granted. When as a people, they turned on the autopilot and just left it taking for granted all of God's promises, all of God's goodness, and all of God's love. And for 2,000 years of history of the Christian church, we have been guilty time and again of doing the exact same thing. Because the problem is not an Israelite problem, is it? It is a human problem. And the human problem is that we take God's love for granted all the time. Remember. We all need to remember to every single day. Awaken ourselves to be committed to Jesus Christ. And so rather than invite you forward to renew that commitment here, pick up the three prayers on your way out and commit yourself this week to every day praying one of those prayers and whatever else God speaks to you so that you can be in renewed in commitment. That is what a spirit-centered life looks like. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for this wonderful story in Exodus, the beautiful story of Moses, and how you call the people to be your salt and light in the world. And we remember, God, that you have now given that commission and purpose and challenge to all of us who are gathered here today that we are now called to be your people. And so God, help us, feed us, sustain us for this work. 
so that we might proclaim the good news of the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.